This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott with the Convergent Science Network podcast. And in this episode that we record as part of the Convergent Science Network Barcelona Cognition Brain Technology Summer School, we're talking with Nick Strausfeld. So, Nick, you started your talk with, with this Quotation. notion of, of placing the study of biology always in the context of evolution, because it wouldn't make any sense. So where's that coming from? Well, it's coming from Theodosius Dobyansky's statement, um, which he made in the, in the 50s, uh, and, and, and really tr- very, very, I think was very relevant to, to what was happening in, in, in biology then, which was a lot of comparative work being done in all sorts of different fields. And it's worthwhile reminding people today of this because we become so incredibly specialized and canalized in our research. So there are these horrible things called model organisms, which I, I loathe the, the term model, these are animals. But there is about three animals that have been funded, at least in America. Uh, and you can't really tell anything about um, evolution from the three. And evolution will tell us about very, very interesting aspects of design. And I don't mean that in the, you know, in, in the bad sense, I mean the the results of an evolutionary um, innovations, uh, and and what 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 was the beginning for, in the nervous system, for example. You know what were the basic circuits that provided an organism with with choice, with 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 allocentric memory, with with the ability to 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 integrate odorant signals to provide behavior, and and, and basically all, all all the kind of senses it has, and how. What kind of nervous system allowed the integration of those sensors to provide elaborate behaviors? And, and, and it's only going to get to that, those answers if one actually does comparative work and thinks about how these things have evolved over right. time. Mm-hmm. But then, um, so where do you stand that right now? So you're one of the world's experts on definitely the, the insect brain. Um, so how should we think about the insect brain? What are then these basic design features it has? What are the basic functional capabilities mm-hmm. that are supported with it? How should we think about that? Well, we have to start thinking about where do insects come from? And the evidence is very strong. They have originated from, from marine ancestors, which we call the crustaceans. And then one has to ask, what is common between insects and crustaceans? Um, what did their common ancestor perhaps look like? And if one can then, you know, resolve the commonalities of the two, then one has an, an idea of the ancestral brain uh, that common to both the insects and crustaceans. Then one has to go even deeper in time and ask, well, what about the ancestors of that ancestor? Um, when did the first insect-like brain or the crustacean-like brain evolve in, in geological time? And that's much more difficult, of course. Right. But now, what are the core structures in that brain that that you think we we should be focusing on in that in that exploration? Well, you can do you can do you can ask questions about the core structures, say, of a particular modality or sensory organ, such as the the the, the compound eye. So, what are the core structures of the compound eye? The core circuits that allow motion detection, for example, motion vision, um, figure ground discrimination. Uh, you can actually resolve some of the neurons that are are involved in those computations in, 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 a, in a fly's eye. Uh, and then you need to get to the actual circuits that provide those computations, uh, not just neurons that encode those computations. And that's, again, more difficult. So the search image could develop from looking at much simpler systems. 
what do they have in common with the fly system, for example? Mm. And so if you compare across many, many different taxa, say of flies, flies that have, you know, have, they have ballistic flight, other flies that can hover, flies that do this, that do that, and then you ask, what do they have in common, all these visual systems? What are the common denominators, if you like? And, and if you find those, then you can ask questions about, are those the, really the principal elements that, that provide information about motion detection? And then go to the crustaceans, do those existing crustaceans? And then go even to more simple organisms mm. such as centipedes and right. so forth. But then if you talk about search image, you really mean a structural template. It's an anatomical template or is more than that? Um, the search image develops from, from really un understanding at least one circuit in one organism. And, and you ask then, is that circuit or the, are those neurons visible or, or are, they, are they obtainable in other, other, other species? That's the search image. Mm -hmm. yeah. But now, where do you see the, the origins of that, of that nervous system? Because in some sense, you could also argue, look, it all started with, let's say, chemical sensing, and the rest evolves oh, I, from there, from then, absolutely. from that point, right? So, yes, yes. I mean, I, I, would, I would envisage that the, the chemical senses are the earliest. Um, before there was um, highly developed vision, um, but the actual computational circuits that provides provided choice, behavioral choice, or for example, memory of place, um, they can operate equally well in, in, in a chemo, chemical mm -hmm. environment as in a visual environment or even a tactile environment. Right. So the, the, the basic organization of the brain um, was, one could say it was independent of, of, of the modality, because it wasn't, because certainly it had to evolve in conjunction with, with the present modality. Right. But it can, it can, it can, can employ other modalities. Mm -hmm. In fact, we have a very good example in, in one species of insect where the mushroom bodies, which are in, in Drosophila and many other insects, they get their major, uh, one of their major inputs from the olfactory system. In, 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 in a species of insect called whirligig beetles, they completely switch modalities and get all their inputs from the visual system. Uh, so if these are place memory centers, which we think they are, then in one instance, they are using olfaction, and the others they're using mm -hmm. vision. You just get the switch. But then that would imply that you're thinking of some sort of backbone structure, yes. a prototypical backbone structure, that you can sort of mold to, let's say, the the, the sensory ecology, the behavioral ecology right. of the organism. So, what is that backbone structure? So, I give you an example. Um, the olfactory, the olfactory system of insects and also of crustaceans. The first synaptic neuropil is is a system of of glomeruli. And in insects, each glomerulus receives the inputs from a set of olfactory receptors that encode the same kinds of of, of information of the same kind of ligands. So one type of olfactory sensory receptor neuron will send its axon to one particular kind of glomerulus. So when you have 40 different kinds of receptors, uh, you have 40 glomeruli, each getting inputs from that particular type of receptor, right? So when you go to the visual system, you see the remarkable thing that in the next ganglia up, which is the protocerebrum of the insect, you have a glomerular organization into which are segregating pathways in the visual system. And this suggests that you have this template of, 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 of computational entities which are repeated segment for segment, mm -hmm. which can deal with the visual input or with the olfactory input or with the tactile input, but the actual computational network is, is, is in principle the same for any sensory modality, mm -hmm. um, which is remarkable and, 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 and this is quite you know, worrying in a sense. Right, so but in this example you would say 
uh, I guess the lobula would have a glomerular... No, 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 definitely not. Okay. The lobula is composed of many, many palisades of of, of neurons, types of neurons, and each palisade encodes a visual primitive, such as an an oriented edge Mm -hmm. of one kind or the other. And each of these palisades then sends its axons convergently to a glomerulus. So each glomerulus represents a particular visual modality, mm-hmm. an edge or a color or whatever. Right. Then interactions amongst these, mod- amongst these glomeruli further reconstruct mm-hmm. the visual image and further provide higher-order right. primitives. The same is happening in the olfactory system. So each glomerulus receives information about a, a small, small sort of palette of ligands, and interactions amongst these mm-hmm. various glomeruli provide information about the odor Right, not the odorant, no, but the odor, the sure. combinations. Un- so it's I, a very same principle, actually. No, I, I understood the yeah. principle. I'm just trying to place it in this visual hierarchy because in the in the chemical sensing system, it's just one step away from the receptor. Exactly. Front end, that, right? that, that that's the question that is always addressed. The 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 homologue, if you like, the functional homologue of the antenna in the visual system is the entire retinotopic mosaic down to the output of the lobula. Oh, you mean the antenna in the, in the chemical sensing system? Yes, right, the, okay. anti- the okay. antenna in the chemical sensing system. Right. The equivalent of that in the visual system is the lamina medulla in the lobular. Right, okay. And the outputs in the lobular are equivalent to the outputs in the antenna. All right, okay. Yeah. So then the where would I find the glomerular structures of the of the optic system in the insect? Beneath the lobular. Okay, very good. And you will mm. find also a, an equivalent to something like a, a projection neuron type readout of these. Yes. That, these yes. will be your white yes. field neurons? Or? Yes, that's what we're looking at right now. Okay, yeah. very good. Yeah. That's beautiful. But then in some sense, we're still talking about the sensory front end of this, right? So the, so the core structure, this archetypical backbone structure, should also be relying on structures that are mapping now sensor states yes, into action. So You're quite right. So you have these reiterated ganglia down the rest of the body, Mm-hmm. And in each ganglion, you have you have domains, glomerular-like domains, and each domain is receiving one or another kind of sensory input, mm-hmm. often mapped. If it's if it's if it's a an input of the of the of the of the mechanosensory system, then that particular type of receptor will invade one of these domains, and you'll have a map representation of those terminals in the, in the domain. Mm-hmm. And then you have local interneurons linking these various domains and integrating all this sensory information, just as it does in the olfactory system or the or the visual right. system. But what happened to to these really very central structures like mushroom bodies ah, or protocerebrum? I mean, yeah. they are sort of sort of in between that that mapping, right? And they're unique to the first segment of the brain, mm-hmm. and and where they come from is a real puzzle. And my suspicion is that they are actually derived from the ancestor of the lophotrochozoans and ecdysozoans, and you see mushroom bodies and central body complexes in worms in polychaete worms, in the in the what's called the acron, which is an asegmental neuropil. It does not belong to a segment. Mm. And so the idea is, and, and there are many opponents to this idea, the idea is that the modern arthropod brain is actually composed of four components. Um, three of them derive from ganglia, primitively from ganglia, and, and the fourth component right at the front is the leftover from the common ancestor. And you still find this in polychaete worms separated from the rest of the system. And that's been integrated into the first segment of the insect or crustacean brain. And it is the substrate for the central body complex and the mushroom bodies. Right, and that then provides you, let's say, the integrative infrastructure for these, these different sensory modalities. It provides the substrates for high-level computations of, say, of allocentricity, mm-hmm. um, a relative, relative memory amongst individuals, 
uh, and also behavioral choice and um yes and and and, and things complex things like dexterity you know, and mm-hmm. such like right yeah these are these are the this is the brain within the brain if you like right okay the the integration amongst amongst sensory systems can be quite local to provide reflex actions mm-hmm. but the integration amongst sensory systems to provide these more complex behaviors requires these higher centers mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, th- so now we have a bit of an idea what, what, what sort of the key components of such an archetypical brain could look like. But you also emphasize that, let's say, the, the, the specifics of the ecology of the animal might lead to variations now in that design. Yeah. So how does that really happen? Is it only through, let's say, evolutionary pressures or are this over long timescales? Or are there more rapid ways to, let's say, reconfigure and configure these these prototype brains. You don't know how plastic they are um, right. in terms of the lifetime of a single organism, but with regard to the structures and the number of neurons and the connectivities, um, the differences between taxa are clearly the result of, 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 of many millions of years of evolution and divergence. But still, you will, you will find also slight deviations within specific taxa of, of or species oh, yeah. dependent on the ecologies they're in. Well, right? Yeah, so these, that's the difference is that's the stuff of evolution. I mean, you look at the, the olfactory lobes across lots of Drosophila and you find all these sort of variations right. of wiring. Mm-hmm. But you've got to have this. You've got to have, otherwise you would not have selectivity. You would not have, you know, the, the species um, responding to selective pressures. Uh, some, of those, some of those variations are, are fitter, endow greater fitness than others. On, on the organism, yeah, you have mm. must have variation. No, but how, how do you see that that exploratory mechanism? Because I mean, within every species, there, in this backbone neural structure that gives it the nervous system, there are exploratory mechanisms that now in, in, are imposing variability on this. And for instance, in your talk, you mentioned that possibly a computational substrate for this kind of variability in, let's say, visual processing could be the lobular plate. Because there you can start to play with how you integrate this kind of information. So would you then predict that also at the level of the lobular plate, you would find the highest variability to allow a species to explore, let's say, mm. the variability of its, of, of, of its visual space in which it has to behave. Yeah, that's true. And, and in fact, when we look across different species of flies, for example, which are, and which have actually very different visual beha- visually induced flying behaviors, we do find very, very fascinating differences of the organization of the lobular plate and the lobular, but not the medulla and lamina. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Yeah. What about the role of development here? Because um, I, I've heard, for instance, in the locust, the, the, a, a significant effect on the development of the brain, for instance, uh, due to whether or not the animal is going to be part of a swarm uh, because there's a high density of population or is going to be perhaps more of a... Uh, a, a low density individual locust and, and being part of a swarm somehow makes the locust develop a larger brain. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Um, that, that's, actually, it's fascinating what's happening in the locust. Are the neurons actually sprouting more dendrites? There's certainly a, a, a radical difference of, of, of size of the brain overall. Is that Does that pertain to all the centers? Does that pertain to certain neuropils? Um, I would put my money on the central body complex and its associated structures uh, because that's the decision-making part of the brain. But I don't think it's been followed through yet. And, 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 and I look forward to seeing papers that are following through on this. But it's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very, very interesting. But it, it does suggest that the real uh, potential for the de- environment to affect the developmental process so that some of these yeah. differences we get... Uh, 
are partly due to maybe some genetic change, but also when the environment changes, that there's plasticity in the development of the system, which can really result in some important changes. One puzzle, I think, is that these changes happen before the locust makes becomes either a goes into you know into into the swarming mode yeah. or, or or the or the actual uh, wandering um, continues the wandering mode that it had as as as, as a juvenile. Um, I, so it's as if the brain is preparing, preparing the, preparing itself for the, for the next role, um, which is really amazing and and. It must be under some kind of hormonal control and so forth. But hmm. it, again, I think we know too little about what is actually changing to, to put one's finger on why it's changing, which is a pity. I'd like to know that. So uh, what, what struck me about your talk is that one of the things that really fascinates you is to trace back uh, modern brains or modern nervous systems to uh, what the ancestral brains might have looked like. And of course, that's uh, a task where you have to look at indirect evidence because uh, there are lots of clues, but nothing definitive really that can tell us what was the path that evolution followed. So uh, can you just summarize quickly the range of, of clues that you think are important to reconstructing evolutionary history here? Yeah, well, the clues have to be, must be constrained to to what, what one would imagine would be visible in a fossil. So isolated neuropils, one from the other, that are connected by tracts, for example. Um, one would be able to see these clearly in a fossil if they existed. Um, internal structures of the brain would be very unlikely to see them, although the, the brain I talked about today, which is 535 million years old in, in, in a stem group arthropod, we can actually see um, differences of texture within the outline of the brain that suggests, for example, the olfactory lobes. And it would be nice to see then other striations or pronounced, you know, maybe outlines, internal outlines that would, would suggest the presence of certain centers that, that we know are required for certain functions of, of modern tax, of, of the behavior of modern taxa. Um, another thing we would look for is, is the kind of fusion of segments that comprise the brain. Um, in, in modern crustaceans, melocultural crustaceans, insects, there are three segments that are fused to comprise the brain. And in some species, even the subesophageal um, ganglia, the three subesophageal ganglia, have moved up and have become almost fused with the supraesophageal ganglia, so that the gut just penetrates the brain. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no clear divisions of ganglia. The whole thing becomes highly condensed, which is a mark of of, of modernity, perhaps evolutionary modernity. Now, I would like to go and look at these ancient brains and ask, is that true? Um, how much condensation of the nervous system can one see in, in the head? And, and for the one that the animal I was, I was showing you today, it's surprising that the first three segments, of first three brain fragments are fused. We were really surprised to see this, uh, quite shocked actually. Um, but that shows us it's already quite advanced. So you're talking about the sort of anatomical morphological markers. Yes, yes. Now, um, nowadays there are a lot of molecular tools looking at DNA, RNA, and so on that, that can tell us a lot about the relationships between different animal groups. Yes. But um, I think you were persuading me in your talk this morning that this isn't enough, uh, although we might get some idea about what's related to what if we really want to understand the history. Yes. We do need the, uh, the anatomy. Yes. Um, 
A case in point is is the origin of insects. Did they derive from a brachiopod-like ancestor, or a remipede-like ancestor, or a malacostrican-like ancestor? The the molecular studies suggest um, malacostrican remipede, but uh, there are other molecular studies which would, would equally well suggest brachiopod. Um, one wouldn't know unless one went to the to morphology, and, and and morphology suggests branchiopods are very simple. Therefore, they must be maybe more primitive than insects, which are more complex. Um, which then suggests that insect brains and malacostrican brains have, have evolved by, by convergence, which is probably nonsense. So, um, one needs these one needs these 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 various strategies for look at, for looking using cladistics to see whether or not there's evidence for reversal and for loss of of, of structures. Uh, that gives the false impression of primitivity. Um, and one cannot possibly do that just using molecular techniques. One has to go in there using anatomical methods. So, yeah, so there is this bias, I think, we have to think that things get more complicated over time. Yes. But in fact, there's evidence that in some cases, things will actually get simpler. Like tapeworms, for example. Mm. So can you give an example of, of, a, of, of, a, a, reverse, simple, yes. of a reversal? For well, instance. parasites. I mean, tapeworms are what are left for trochozoans. Mm. They don't even have a brain. I mean, they, they've lost everything, really. And they're just reproductive organs, which mm. are living off one's gut. You know. I mean, there are lots of, lots of nematodes. There's another, another, these are ectisozoans. Uh, they molt. Um, presumably their ancestors had, had, had what somewhat more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means a simple... There's a lot of, there are a lot of examples so of reduction and loss. But, but also, as Tony mentioned earlier, this, this sort of like simple heuristic that would say look brains go from simple to complex is not working it's yeah. not it's not as a guideline it's not helping us no. but what should replace this heuristic what's the heuristic that we shouldn't follow that's a difficult question to answer um no heuristic i well, don't know i, I think know. stephen gould uh, compared evolution to uh, a drunk man stumbling along the pavement mm-hmm. so sometimes you move further out from the mm-hmm. wall which could be an mm-hmm. increasing complexity sometimes you you move mm-hmm. closer yeah, that's to a it. nice analogy yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so and, and another interesting thing i think that came from your talk which perhaps also links with, with some of stephen jay gould's ideas is that we, I think, used to imagine that uh, evolution was a slow process and a gradual process. Mm-hmm. And over hundreds of million years of years, we got these advanced forms or these recent forms we see today. But actually, what was striking about your talk today was that you were arguing that some of the things that we see in contemporary organisms were already present really shortly after the appearance of the first multicelled animals. Yes, shortly meaning yes. Well, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Fifty million years is yeah. a very short time. Yes, exactly. So this is really quite quite fascinating. You have you have this plethora of different body forms um, in, in Camry called the Cambrian explosion. These different arthropod-like animals. And this is five hundred million years yeah, ago, yeah. suggesting very very rapid evolution of, of morphologies, and yet. The, 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 the ground pattern of the nervous system, probably across them all, is, is, is this very, very consistent organization that exists today. Mm-hmm. So you have, in a sense, stasis and slow elaboration of the ground pattern of the nervous system, and then this very, very rapid elaboration of, 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 mm-hmm. of, of appendages and other decorations that provide the inputs to this but, but consistent organization of the CNS. Would you, would you argue that then still that, that very basic proto-brain was the facilitator of all this variability? No, 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 no. It had to accommodate this variability mm-hmm. through evolutionary time. I don't think it was the facilitator. Although one can't really imagine um, how 
an organism could develop complicated mouthparts and, 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 and sensory appendages if there was nothing there for, for them to actually right. s- supply I mean, information to. This was still this is, was still the engine powering all these yeah. functional capabilities. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you could also argue, uh, just to test out this idea, that evolution stumbled, if you want, into an, a brain uh, prototype and that, that gave, suddenly facilitates yes, you the computational yeah. power to yeah. support all these different yes. body machines. Right, right. So you would not necessarily reject that interpretation. Not at all. Okay. Um, so, but now the amazing thing that, that, that you also presented to us today is that you actually have found a way, if you want, to, to come up with sort of more direct evidence that evolution might have progressed in a very specific way. Right? That, we, that we can go beyond conjecture but actually look at what brains looked like during the Cambrian explosion, as opposed to having to speculate what they might have looked like. Yeah, I wouldn't say it progressed in a specific way. It's sort of too teleological from, from my taste. Um, yeah, I wouldn't know really how to, to... I mean, clearly there was no progression. There was no internal you know, engine that drove evolution. Um, these things all occurred by accident uh, and 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 by selection, depending upon their their viability. So yes, what very early on they had the, the, uh, this the, the evolution gave rise to this this thing we call the brain, mm-hmm. this simple brain, uh, and that indeed allowed then its elaboration right um, through process of 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 hit and miss evolution. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just say change, okay, then mm. if to keep it sort of neutral in that mm. sense. But I think that what was amazing was that you found a way to sort of travel back in time and try and direct evidence for whatever these changes were. And I think this this was really, uh, I think, a very dramatic piece of evidence, actually. So maybe yeah. you could... We were lucky. We were lucky. So I mean, maybe you can explain yeah. to us what, what, what was the question, really, that you were trying to answer, and how well, did you answer it? The, 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 the question derives from the, 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 the cladistics that we were doing, the, the trying to reconstruct phylogenies using brain characters, and it 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 indicates that our our results in this cladistic analysis indicated that branchiopods could not be the precursors of the of the of the insects and crustaceans. There must have been some kind of evolved loss. So again, as I said in the talk, that the only way to prove this is to go back in time and look at the early brains. Now, where did one find early brains? So. First of all, I went to the Smithsonian and, and looked through their fossil collection and found this one particular fossil that showed an early brain. But it didn't really, wasn't really quite, quite so satisfying. Um, there were clearly very, very good optic lobes. It had very nice compound eyes. So could, how, how can you see an early brain in a fossil? Because, I mean, the, the, the assumption most people have is that brains can't fossilize. Yes, but that is the assumption. And I never quite understood it because brains, the, the brain is the most densely packed tissue in the body. You take a you know electromyograph through an insect brain or any brain, and it's packed, 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 packed full of profiles, and these profiles have got lots and lots and lots of lipids, and inside there are lots of mitochondria and there's lots of you know iron, um, and it's a great bulky piece of tissue, and uh, if you put that into quite reasonably anoxic conditions, it has a reasonable chance of surviving mm-hmm. um, during 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 mineralization. Uh, but there are very few taphonomic conditions that would, would allow this. And one is in, in, in the Virgin Shale, as you know, and, and the other is in the Qingqiang um, so, mudstone. So 
that's the best way to go to it. And, and you do see these, these trace internal organs, mm-hmm. um, particularly gut. Um, and gut's very popular amongst paleontologists. They love to say, oh, there's gut. Mm-hmm. But then you look in the head, in front of where the, the mouth was, and, and, and that could be gut diverticular. And indeed, in some, in some specimens, you do have diverticular from the gut that invade the head capsule. But in others, you can clearly see the, the, the bundles, the, the, the nerves coming in from the, from the antennae, um, the optic stalk um, tract going into a, 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 a structure within the head capsule. And associated with that, you can also see ocelli. You can see the compound eyes uh, and various other attributes and also the paired, the paired um, nerve cords. And there you have then evidence of brain. Mm-hmm. So this is a fossil of an animal that lived 535 million years ago. Wapti was 500, 500 about right. then. They, okay. The ones in, in the Chiang Chang are 535, yeah. And, and they're looking quite similar to some living animals. Yes, the ones from the Ching Chang fauna, the Fuxian Hui, um, it, its brain is, is that of a modern Malacostrican. Yes, it has the three optic neuropils, it has the fused ganglia, uh, what and more? it's morphology, the body morphology. is incredibly simple. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the fun part of it. You have, this, you have this head capsule with eyes that clearly could move uh, conjointly and convergently. They could also rotate, so you had active vision. You have different radius of, radii of curvature on the eye, so you had probably acute zones and mm-hmm. non-acute zones. So that part of the head, this, 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 this most frontal part of the head, was, was was reasonably sophisticated, like that of a small shrimp. Right. And it has the three optic neuropils one would expect from a small shrimp. But we're not but shrimps are very complicated. You know, the rest of them are all got these elaborations and spines and interesting appendages and so forth. Whereas Fuxian Hui has this homonymous architecture in the thorax and then again in the abdomen abdomen. Mm-hmm. And one would think, Oh gosh, what a simple animal, but no. It's not. It, it has actually. It's, it must be. Must have been quite, quite, quite sophisticated in terms of what it could process up front. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it did have, let's say, a shrimp-like body, or would well, you it not was. Call it was. It yeah, it's a. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's, it's a crustaceomorph, if you like. It's a stem right. taxon, which has attributes that one can see to more or less um, in in some modern modern crustaceans. There's this anculine species, they're called the remipedes. Um, um, Godzilliogonomamus, I forget how to pronounce this, it's got a wonderful name. This thing is homonymous, every single segment is identical except the first two segments up Mm -hmm. front. So it looks like a living fossil, but it's probably also undergone reversal and loss. Right. If you look at the brain, it has a malacostrican brain, except it has no optic lobes. Mm -hmm. Um, So it has a very superb brain with a very, very simple body. Fuxian Hui, which is very ancient, has a lovely brain with a very, very simple body. Right. But that's probably not, probably not reduction and loss. That's probably for real. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's an animal that has not reduced anything. Right. It's a very early organization. But now in reconstructing this brain, all you can go for is, let's say, volumetric information, right? What is the size, what are the sizes, relative sizes of things? No, 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 no. no. Volumetric is not really terribly interesting. What's interesting is to actually identify these centers, the three nested optic lobe centers, which yeah. are a diagnostic of, 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 of modern malacostricans and insects, mm-hmm. but not of branchiopods. So it shows that this organization is the, is the ancestral organization, mm-hmm. and, 
appeared before the brachiopods even appeared in the mm. fossil record. Mm. And also you can actually t- show from the, from the incoming nerve bundles in the antennae, from the second antennae and from the eyes, that you have then three fused ganglia. Yes, so how did you identify exactly these, the, these three layers? These the, three, three the three bundles? Yeah. The antennae are beautifully preserved, mm-hmm. as are sensilla on the antenna. Mm-hmm. And then out of the antenna you have this, this beautiful darkly brown stained tract, which mm-hmm. is the antennal nerve entering the, entering the, the, the outline of the brain. And at, just after the entry point, you have this area of, 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 of rough preservation, which, which corresponds to the olfactory lobe position. Right. And that's bilaterally symmetrical. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit more cordially, you have another nerve entering, bilaterally symmetrical. Mm-hmm. And that nerve um, is, um, it then turns down and plunges down into the substrate, into the matrix of the fossil. Uh, and its direction is towards the, the next pair of appendages with the mm-hmm. second antennae. So the um, shrimp brain, the modern shrimp brain, is a lot like this very early mm. uh, animal brain. Mm. But uh, And you say the shrimp body is much more complicated. Does, does that mean that a lot of the nervous system complexity that goes with that uh, new body or change to the body is, is not in the brain, but it's in the other segments? I, would, I think it's probably, certainly there are, there, are, there, are, there are ascending pathways from the ganglia throughout the body that reach the brain in, in, a, in, in a shrimp and in an insect and probably in Fuxianhui as well. Um, it may be that, that some of the more complicated and more elaborate appendages of, of, of the shrimp, of the modern shrimp, um, send information that is required for cerebral computations. Hmm. Um, tactile information, for example, and that would then involve maybe additional brain regions that have evolved um, in, in through time, or maybe enlargement of regions that were already there in, in, in this ancestral brain. We have no idea. But when we compare across, across contemporary species, we can see certainly that the brain varies in size and in dimensions of certain regions, not because of actual attributes of the head, with regard to attributes of the thoracic ganglia and abdominal ganglia. Right. But, I mean, this idea that, that of a distributed nervous system where within the segments, uh, the local control, for instance, of an actuator system or mm. a, a limb is happening in that segment. And then the information that's ascending to the brain may be fairly uh, limited compared to what's being sent to the segment. So you're just sending to the brain the information that's relevant to how, the decisions you might need to make. Well, yes, the reafferent, the reafferent pathways to the brain certainly will, will inform the brain about what is going on in, in, in the ganglia. And one of the attributes of, 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 of a dexterous insect, like, say, a praying mantis, is the ability to break symmetry. Um, and the circuits in each ganglion, of course, are, are symmetrical, and they provide symmetrical or at least alternating movements. So to break that is, is a function of the brain. So the brain is, it requ- is, is required to, if you like, receive information about the activity of, of those of those centers, absolutely. Mm. Uh, so the more um, elaborate, um, if you like, motor actions that are performed by the, by, 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 by the, by, by the, by the limbs, uh, the more reafferents one might expect reaching up to the brain into some of these higher centers. Um, this this kind of, 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 of elaborate dexter- dexterous behaviors amongst the crustaceans is quite limited, say, to, to the crabs um, and to, to, to some of the 
malacostracans, for example, the mantis shrimps. And interestingly, the mantis shrimp brain is very, very insect-like. It has, it has centers that one would, one would actually expect in a praying mantis. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, whereas the shrimp brain, the shrimps, you know, they don't really have much dexterity, except for, for, for two, two limbs. Um, and, and most of the stuff is happening, I think, locally. Most of the um, motor coordinators happening locally without the participation of the brain. So I want to pr- to follow, pursue a bit more this issue of similarity, right? Because here we have this yeah. fossil that's 535 million yeah, years old, yeah. and it, it looks like a modern shrimp, if you want. No, no, no. I, no, I, I mean, no. The, the, the brain. The brain, the yes. Brain, okay. Yes. Um, you already explained that the body is, is not Very identical. Different. right? Mm. But still, in terms of, of now, what how, how specific can we get about the similarities of these brains? Like, for instance... If you would look at, okay, now we have the antenna providing inputs to a deposit that, that matches something like an antenna lobe. Mm. Would you say that, let's say, the volume of that antenna lobe and the number of glomeruli that we could imagine would be also housed in that, in the, or making up that antenna lobe, um, would be comparable to that what you would find in a, in a matching sh- in Shrimp's brain? I think when, when, when I would hesitate very, I would hesitate a very long time before I would try to kind of do that kind of comparison um, for, if no other, for no other reason that when you compare the optic optic um, the olfactory lobes across different species of even of malacostricans of decapods even then you have a lot of differences uh, of packing of glomeruli of sizes of glomeruli uh, no, within exactly. the same within the same volume so I don't think one can actually try that trick on fossils no, so that, that, that then puts a boundary on, oh, on let's yes. say, a similarity assessment you can make. It, absolutely. Right? And I would try to understand that yeah. boundary. So, yeah. so where, where would you draw that boundary? Just, let's say, on, on core structure, um, main, the main neuropills making up I think this nervous system? I think, as I said, I think the, the, at the moment the boundaries would be to determine the number of segments involved in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, if one is very lucky, uh, the position of the olfactory lobes. Um, if one's luckier, then perhaps um, protocerebral outgrowths, which might suggest a hemiellipsoid body. Um, certainly the, the number of, of optic, optic neuropils. Um, and then the roots of the various nerves that invade the brain. And that's about it. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Yeah. So then, what, what's the next step in this, in this process? I mean, you're going after more fossils, I, yeah, I, I assume, to, yes. right? Yeah, so there's, there's a, a, there is the question of the other brain. And the other brain is the brain that pertains to the chelicerates, which are the spiders, the, the, the scorpions, and their relatives, including Limulus, which is a very ancient morphology. Um, I maybe don't have time to go into all the nitty-gritty of, of why these brains look so very different from those of crustaceans and insects, but they are very different. Could you just mention a few outstanding, the most obvious differences? Well, the most obvious differences is the condensation of of both the pre and the the, the pre and post oral neuropils. So, what has happened is that the first three segments of the brain are pretty much fused, with the second, third, and fourth segment of the brain, which is subesophageal, which is post oral, which are pretty much fused with the remaining ganglia, which have come together as one great lump. So at least the brain is, is a massive neuropil with a hole through for the gut. And it's very different from that of, a, of, of any crustacean or insect. Um, 
only spiders have evolved um, a nervous, a visual system with three discrete centers. And these look very different from those of an insect. So there's a very nice example of convergent evolution, although these centers are retinotopic. Mm. Um, so there's, there are major there's already major differences. Mm. So in the more basal chelicerates, we will never see uh, three op op optic centers. Right. So the goal then is to now find a fossil that can... Match that template, right. match that search image. But we know from things called sea spiders, Pycnogonidae, um, their brains have all the, 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 the neuropils that are characteristic of the spider and chelicerate brains, um, which have got certain differences from those of crustaceans and insects. For example, the central body complex looks very different in all the crustaceans, uh, from all the, those in crustaceans and insects. So the, 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 the pycnogonid has a spider brain, spider-like brain, but it has segmental ganglia. So it's the only chelicerate with segmental ganglia that's alive mm -hmm. today. Limulus does have segmental ganglia, but they're very, very fused. So we would look then for this, 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 this spider-like brain plus segmental ganglia mm -hmm. in something right. like Naroe. And as I showed you today, Naroe has, we have one specimen in Naroe which we have very nice segmental ganglia mm -hmm. preserved. We haven't got a Naroe, a Naroid which shows the brain yet. So that's the next target. Mm -hmm. Because right. the Naroids are supposed to be in the stem group mm -hmm. arachnomorphs, belong to the stem group arachnomorphs. So that would be fascinating to find the neuroid brain and show that it is actually very different from that of the, of the crustacea morph brain, the Fuxianhui brain. And then we'd have the other nervous system, the other branch of, 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 right. of the arthropod mm. But what does the neuroid look like? What kind of animal? It's a very, another very oh. simple animal with a mm. pair of antennae with a head shield and, 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 and rather simple uh, segments. Um, okay. It was probably much more ambulatory, or rather not, not so much of a swimmer. We don't really mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. But there are certain aspects which, which, which distinguish the neuroid from, yeah, from Fuchs and right. But, you know, there's, there's, so much, mm -hmm. there's so much ambiguity of these forms. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, you, you saw today Waptia. Waptia is this very strange animal, which, you know, there's, there's a children's book called Animal, animal Crackers. I used to have it when I was a kid. So you had pictures of animals that were cut in three pieces, so you could actually mix and match. You could, mm -hmm. have, a, right. you could have a cat or goose or something mm -hmm. like that. So Waptu looks like one of these, you know, kangarillas. <laughs> um, right. We have bits of trilobite and mm -hmm. bits of insect and bits of mm -hmm. crustaceans all stuck together. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very hard to say, well, this right. must belong to this particular mm -hmm. trajectory or but that now, particular trajectory. But now these two brains, so one you identified, the second one you're looking for. We have the search image for exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. So you would expect it also to be around 500 million years old, more oh, or uh, less. Oh, uh, 535 million. It's got to be the same. Okay. It's got to be right. coeval. Exactly. But then yeah. your suggestion is that, that these two brains are then one bifurcation removed from, let's say, the common ancestor brain. They, they, have, de they have a derived from a common ancestor yeah. somewhere deeper down. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that common ancestor, if you go far enough back, was also a common ancestor to us. Yes. And so what is are the prospects of finding out more about the, the shared common ancestor between vertebrates and invertebrates? From the fossil record, I would be very pessimistic. But from modern molecular developmental biology, there is already fabulous information about how you can rescue the forebrain, say, of a Drosophila using a gene that's required for forebrain development in a mouse, and vice versa, homologous genes. So the genetic evidence is that the head segmentation 
of, of flies, and therefore, of course, crustaceans, etc., etc., and those of mice, therefore, of cyclostomes, etc., etc., they derive from a common ancestor which had a tripartite brain. Mm-hmm. Um, that is fascinating, and it's, it's really so exciting. And people like Heinrich Reichardt and, and also Frank Hirth, who have been involved in this work, uh, really deserve a lot of praise for, mm-hmm. for, for bringing us to that, 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 that level of understanding, I think. Of course, there are still opponents of this. But that's an important uh, point, right? because you use this notion of tripartite brain, which was also used by people like McLean to say, like, the brain evolved in three stages. But it's important to emphasize in this case that the three stages are there from the beginning. And not well, like and maybe it did evolve in three stages before, before, before the origin of these various trajectories. Mm-hmm. It's possible. We have, you know, right. It'd be a very different decomposition than one McLean imagined. No, no, but uh, just yeah. since the same keyword. I just wanted yeah. to sort of emphasize a little bit. Yeah. That we're talking about a different kind of yeah. tripartite scheme. He was right? talking about uh, amphibians, reptiles, and mammals. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and then you sort of glued yeah. one module on top of the other. Yeah, well, that, and then, that's, okay. that, yeah, that's I think. Um, uh, it, yeah, so it's not very. Uh, Whereas the, the, what we now know is that the history of this structure is very, very far back. Yeah, um, in in the Cambrian and possibly in the Precambrian times. Right, exactly. There's been, there's been a very lovely paper from from Sten Grillner's lab um, early this year, uh, demonstrating that in the cyclostome, um, the organisation of the basal ganglia uh, is really no different than that in us. Mm-hmm. Right. right. I mean, these 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 ba- these ground pattern organisations. Um, are, are the indicators mm. of, of genealogical genealogical right. correspondence, mm. and that's what one's looking mm. for mm. Uh, to find. You know, what did the common ancestor really look like in right. terms of its neural organization? So, so Nick, uh, this is a beautiful tour through the let's say the evolution of the brain, trying to understand its origins. And so, so to conclude, there are two questions. Um, also, given your experience, trying to understand really the basic design of brains, what's the the Nick Strausfeld law that we should adhere to? A Strasfeld what? Law. <laughs> oh, I don't make laws. Um, I would, I, You're I, against laws. Absolutely, yes, yes, uh-huh. yes. Ideas, but not laws. It's <laughs> on heuristics then, suggestions. Um, well, as I said, you know, the next, the next, the next um, undertaking will be, uh, well, I do several, I wear several hats, as you probably realize. Mm-hmm. Um, the next undertaking with regard to the search of, of, of will, be, will be the other brain, the, the, the arachnid type brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the undertakings, but then my bread and butter research is on vision, so that's, that's right. That's, that's something that's, else. That's something else. Yeah. So now, in five years from now, we're going to go visit you wherever you are on this planet, digging for fossils somewhere, and we're going to remind you of a hypothesis you're going to generate today, which is like, hey, Nick, you, you know, you, you predicted September 2012 that X would be valid mm. in our understanding of the brain. So, what's that hypothesis you feel most strongly about today? Well, I think. As I said, I think there are two, the two evolutionary trajectories giving rise to these two major groups of arthropods, the the chelicerates and the others, mm-hmm. the mandibulates. Um, all these 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 wonderful body forms one sees throughout the history of evolution, they're like decorations on two kinds of Christmas tree. You have the same kind of Christmas tree for you have one species like a spruce, mm-hmm. beautiful branch Christmas tree for the for the trajectory leading to insects and crustaceans, another kind of tree, 
towards the chalicerates. Then you hang mm. different kinds of baubles every Christmas on these trees, mm-hmm. right? And in each, then each Christmas you have a different species, but right. the actual the mm. basic structure right. inside is the same throughout. Mm. It's a continuum. Mm. And we hang again off another three yeah. tree. Right, mm. right, right. Okay, Nick Strassel, thank you very much for this yeah. conversation. You're very welcome. <laughs> The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomedics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening. Thank you.